The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 2, 1-12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then... Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Charlene. Appreciate that. Hey, everybody. uh, We are uh, moving forward uh, still in our encounters with Christ series, and we're locking in on the Advent or on several of the Advent encounters uh, here during the Advent season, and this week we uh, arrive at the stargazing wise men. Uh, So if you were to walk the campus at Harvard University, uh, you would see signs of Christian origins everywhere. Uh, On virtually every academic building greeting you above the door will be uh, a scripture from either the Old or the New Testament uh, etched in stone. If you go to Princeton, uh, you would find a cemetery uh, in the middle of the campus, and buried and memorialized there are former Princeton professors who are also great ministers and theologians like Jonathan Edwards, Archibald Alexander, Charles Hodge, Benjamin Warfield, and many others from the tradition that we often draw on here. If you were to go to Yale and uh, go into the library, you would discover that the Jonathan Edwards collection is there, his handwritten book manuscripts and his handwritten sermon notes are there at Yale. Uh, I've mentioned this before. Uh, Every Ivy League university except for one uh, has Christian origins having been founded by 
a group of Christian ministers uh, and or lay people. Same thing can be said about the origins of Oxford, Cambridge, uh, St. Andrews, and other places that you might call the smart, smart schools. Now, they also share in common, specifically since the Enlightenment, a gradual gravitational pull away from their Christian beginnings and origins as institutions. And the Ivies and places like Oxford and Cambridge and St. Andrews in some ways have become the training grounds for the world's foremost Uh, and most thoughtful and intelligent atheists, agnostics, and secularists. And uh, Harvard is representative of the changing populations at all of these different uh, higher institutions of learning. Uh, The Harvard faculty, last report I read, 37% identify as either atheist or agnostic, uh, and 40%, uh, just a, a few more than that, identify as theists or believing, believers in the existence of God. Uh, the class of 2020, uh, 38% identify as either atheist or agnostic, and 4% fewer than that, 34% identify as Christian. So it's a, it's a changing landscape in the institutions that are training sort of the future public intellectuals, the future uh, knowledge elites and philosophers, and so on. And I if you're a Christian, uh, I don't assume that everybody here is, but if you, if you are among the Christians in here, um, this is no reason to panic or to get discouraged. Uh, in fact, if, if we take a look at history, and even if we read into this story here, we will find that over the course of history, it is from a place of minority status that Christian faith has been the most deep, the most faithful, and the most intellectually sharp. And so there's something about being in the minority that can sharpen us and make us more fruitful rather than less. And so I don't personally think this is a cause for discouragement. But the point is that that, that there has been an erosion of faith among uh, knowledge elites and philosophers and public intellectuals uh, and such. Uh, The group that uh, Thomas Wolfe once called the culturati, right? The, the, the gatekeepers, the kingmakers, the smart, smart people. And, and so, in our current context, it, it may turn scriptures like the one that was just read to us by Charlene into a surprise, because you've got wise men from the East. These are the educated seculars. They're, they are the first century uh, uh, version of our modern-day post-enlightenment uh, culturati or public intellectuals. If the first century had an NPR uh, or a Terry Gross or a Cornell West on the left, or if the first century had a National Review or a David Brooks or a Jordan Peterson more toward the right, they would all come from this group. They would all come from the wise men from the east, specifically from Persia and Babylon. And instead of coming into this situation with ideas and with teachings and with, with, with insights, they come with questions. 
And what's really curious is they're not asking questions of their sages and of their former professors, etc. They are asking questions, they would have been asking questions specifically of their Jewish neighbors, which would have been specifically their neighbors in Babylon, and the Jewish neighbors would have gotten there through the exile under Nebuchadnezzar, which means that these would have been their oppressed neighbors, some of whom may have been their slaves. And they are asking them questions about the meaning of things. And then they journey, a long journey, to the feet of a young woman named Mary with no education, uh, married to a blue-collar guy, Joseph, a carpenter. And they ask more questions. And to shepherds who couldn't even read, you've got the, 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 the higher education people asking inquisitively of people who didn't even know how to read and who had no status, who had no profile, questions like this, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star and we have come to worship them. Now, their Jewish friends in Babylon would have no doubt told them about the prophecy in Micah 5 verse 2, you, O Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth a ruler from of old in Israel, and he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Uh, or Numbers 24, 17, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter from Israel, and he will crush the head of kings, kings like Herod, perhaps. And so, for these wise men, these culturati, these philosophers, these, 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 these ivy-level public intellectuals, to make this journey to inquire of these people would have been, been regarded as one of the most absurd trips that anyone could ever take. Why? Number one, it's a suicide mission because they are inquiring about somebody who is, is claimed by a people to be king. And Herod was a bloodthirsty man, and anybody who, who gave a whiff of, of wanting to have any authority that he thought belonged to him, he would finish them off. We'll talk a little bit more about Herod next week. But at the very least, even if they escaped Herod's bloodthirsty rampage, they would be committing career suicide. Because who among their colleagues would have, would have said that that, that, that that it's a plausible or, 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 or a, a wise thing to seek wisdom from people who don't even have an education. And so their gravitational pull is actually in the opposite direction of what we see at our institutions of higher learning today. It's actually a gravitational pull toward, back toward the foolishness of God, which makes very little sense to the natural human mind and heart. Three headings here, foolish ideas, foolish associations, and then finally foolish dreams to paint a picture of what Advent really is. Foolish ideas. So every culture has intersecting points with Christianity. Every philosophy, every worldview, there are intersecting points because, you know, truth can be found everywhere, beauty can be found everywhere because the image of God is in every person. And so, so every philosophical construct, every, every, um, every you know, intellectual tribe, every school of thought, there will be things about the Christian message 
that resonate, but there are also going to be things about the Christian message that are found objectionable to the wisdom of the age, are found offensive, even evil to the wisdom of the age. You find this happening back in the first century. There's, there's three clashes that we can pull out of this that I can observe here. One is the clash with power. And uh, did you catch it? Herod, did you catch his pandering stump speech? Uh, he's a bit here like the godless politicians who end their speeches with God bless America. You ever see the, uh, you ever see the, the movie Head of State? Didn't win any Oscars, no nominations for the Academy Award, uh, Awards, but it's kind of a funny movie. Chris Rock was running for president, and there was this other guy running against him who's, you know, kind of the buffoon character of the movie. And, and the guy who's running against him, he ends every speech this way, God bless America and no place else. <laughs> you know, God talk as a means not as the expression of an ends of one, one's heart. God talk is the means, my power and supremacy as the end. And so Herod says, somewhat deceptively, search diligently for the child. When you find him, tell me, so I too can worship him. And by worship him, he means kill him. And we're going to see this in the unfolding of this chapter next week, especially, where Herod issues a decree upon hearing the rumor that one is rumored to have been born king of the Jews. Upon hearing that rumor, he issues a, a decree for every male child age two and under to be slaughtered. So he wants to make sure he covers all the bases to be sure that he gets this one. And so, there's a clash with power that the wise men are willingly entering into, but there's also a clash with sexual norms of the day. If you go to chapter 14, there you, you see Herod the Tetrarch, who is the son of this Herod, and it says that he has taken his own brother's wife as a mistress, and in comes John the Baptist speaking truth to power. That is wrong. That is morally and ethically wrong. And from that moment forward, Herod, the son of Herod, he throws John the Baptist in prison and eventually uh, slices his head off of his torso. Clash with the sexual norms of the day. Here you've got Herod the Tetrarch saying, your sexual ethics, they're not only offensive to me, they are just flat out objectively evil. And then you've got a clash with the financial dogma of the day. So this was a very expensive trip. Uh, these are very expensive gifts, uh, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh that they're, they're, pouring, uh, you know, they're pouring out to this Christ child. So, so when we were in New York, I was in a, in a small group with, with a guy who was number, the number two person at a hedge fund. And apparently, and we discover this, there's a big difference between uh, what the number two person and what the number one person makes in a hedge fund. And he, he told us how his boss, the number one person, would routinely purchase a bottle of wine for $25,000, give or take, 
uh, and, you know, drink it and so on. Uh, and it, this is like pouring out one of those bottles of wine. And, 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 and the most costly essential oils that you could, you could find, that's what's being poured out. It seems foolish, ridiculous, irresponsible, but that's what they're doing because of the value that they see in this baby king and his kingdom. You know, one historian says that the thing that, that confounded and baffled the surrounding culture about Christians in the first century is that they were conservative with their bodies and promiscuous with their money. Foolish ideas. And when you're at peace with God, specifically through Jesus as King, there's going to be someone eventually along the way who's going to want to declare war on you because there's going to be a clash of dogma somehow. So, Take it, you know, generationally, for example. Every generation thinks that it's the enlightened generation and that other generations are stupid. We think our grandparents were stupid. We think our children and grandchildren are stupid. And we think we're the enlightened ones. You know, for instance, probably over 90% of the people in here thought, think that our grandparents were too conservative and too prudish. You know, they had shows like Leave it to Beaver, and, and, you know, the camera would go into Warden June's bedroom and show that they had separate beds on the opposite sides of the room, and we're appalled by that. It's not even Christian, and it's true, it's not. But our grandparents' generation who loved Warden June would be utterly appalled as well by the way that we have bought into and baptize the sexual revolution of our time. Who's right? Who's wrong? Neither and both. Both have something to teach. Both have something to repudiate. Same is true with every culture. Every culture thinks it's the enlightened culture and everybody else is stupid. If you're from the East, you look at life this way. I will be true to the community. I will be true to the tribe, even at the expense of myself. Whereas if you come to the West, it's the opposite. I will be true to myself, even if it's at the expense of the community. Both have things to teach. Both are utterly foolish from the Christian perspective. Because if you're from the East... Your potential flaw is that you're going to completely lose your uniqueness and individuality because your, your whole identity is, is locked up in the tribe. Whereas over here in, in the West, you're foolish because you just don't care about anything but you and your truth. As if you were the arbiter of truth. And yet if you take the good of both, you, you, you get... You get, on the one hand, your uniqueness as an image bearer of God. Yes, you are a snowflake. Nobody is like you. And God intended it that way, and that's something to celebrate. And it's not about you. Your life exists for the sake of loving God and loving other people. That is why you are here. You know, if, you're, if your 
identified and aligned with Christ. If you are following this star, you are going to bother other generations. You're going to bother other cultures. You're going to bother your own generation. And you're going to bother your own culture. You're going to be too conservative for the liberals around you. You're going to be too liberal for the conservatives around you. But that's the wisdom of God. It's timeless and it's transcultural. Think about the timelessness of it. If you read Christian literature from two years ago, 20 years ago, 200 years ago, or 2,000 years ago, it's all going to be saying the same things in terms of that which is fundamental, that which is essential, that which is right and true and beautiful. The, the Apostles' Creed, Kevin Twitt, what was it? Somewhere between 300 and 400 A.D., the Apostles' Creed was given to us, thereabouts. Okay, I'm wrong. Consult with Kevin. Somewhere a long, long time ago, and we still recite it all over the world. Every week, every Lord's Day, we still recite it with enthusiasm, just like they did 100 years ago and 200 years ago and 1,000 years ago, and as they will 2,000 years from now. It sticks. It, sa- it stays. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever, but it's also culturally transcendent. Now, you take a 25-year-old medical student at Vanderbilt today, and she will feel more kindredness with a 70-year-old uneducated African farmer than she will with her own peers who do not know the Lord. There is something that pulls you together in Christ and that transcends culture, that transcends otherness, or at least it ought to more than any other thing. So foolish ideas, foolish associations would be the second thought. So one of, uh, one of Tim Keller's takes on this um, Advent story is this. Imagine that you're Jesus and you're coming out as a king and you hire a campaign manager, and you tell your campaign manager that the goal is not only for me to reign sovereign from this, at this time, but also from this time forth and forevermore. And, and, and part of what that uh, unfolding story and trajectory will look like is that 2,000 years from now, 35% of the world will be building their lives and, 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 and also entire civilizations around my teaching. They're going to be organizing the calendars of their lives around the calendar of my life. And 70% of the world will know my name and will know at least something about my story. And so in comes the campaign manager and says, here's our strategy. Power brokers, we're just going to ignore them. Herod, we're not going to ask him to speak at your campaign rally. In fact, what we're going to do is avoid him. We're going to run from him. We're going to go to a small town to get away from him in the big city. And the celebrity pastors, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, we're going to ignore them too. What we're going to do instead is we're going to to seek wisdom from those who are not just in the Rust Belt, they're beyond the Rust Belt. They're below and beneath the Rust Belt. That's who we're going to align ourselves with. The wise men, we're going to seek wisdom from the exiles and from our own servants. We're going to seek wisdom from this young teenage 
woman married to a wood worker who's completely obscure, who's wearing the scarlet letter in her culture because they don't understand the truth of her story. And instead of calling you a king, Jesus, here's the campaign strategy. We're going to call you a shepherd. A shepherd. Like one who can't read. Like one who hasn't had an education. Like one who's not connected to the culturati. Like one who doesn't have access to all halls of power. Like one who doesn't have access to, to elite social circles. How's that? Winning strategy? Right? So one of the sermons that I heard in, in preparation, just to get inspired to prepare this message, we'll pull an excerpt out of that said this, the world puts all of its emphasis on physical attractiveness, brilliance of thought and speech, influence, power, money, and politics. But God at Christmas time began the whole career of Jesus to utterly show the superficiality of everything that the world wants. When we don't have professional status, material comfort, power and influence, money, brilliance, performance, talent, looks, we are in agony when we don't have those things. The one person who has become the most single influential figure in the history of the world utterly scorned all of the things that the world says are important. Who got left behind? Herod, Pontius Pilate, the chief priests, the scribes. Who got pulled in to the inner ring? the shepherds, the, the, the nobodies who were of no account, the wise men. By the way, they, they weren't just the intelligentsia for the secular world. They were also the ethnic inferior to the Jewish religious world. And so you've got two inferior groups of people in the eyes of the world, or at least in the eyes of some parts of the world, at the same feet of Jesus Christ, in the same place. The, the, the wise men, they were astrologers. Isaiah 47 is quite clear that astrology was a pagan practice to be repudiated, to not be entered into, and yet, and yet God uses even that practice of following the stars to lead them to true worship, to where they become even more sincere spirit and truth worshipers than the chiefs, chief priests and scribes through possibly distorted means, but they're received and memorialized nonetheless. So I was reading in uh, Gandhi's biography once about how uh, a person asked him one time why he chooses to ride the train in the third-class car. You have access to kings and queens and royalty, uh, you can stay at the nicest hotels. People will roll out the red carpet for you everywhere you go. And this committed Hindu man says, the reason why I don't ride third class, or uh, the reason why I do ride third class is because there is no fourth class car. Let that be a prophetic statement to Christians who are in agony because they have to ride second class, because they can't get to the first class seats. Somehow their access is restricted more than they would like it to be to wealth and power and fame and 
status and inner rings and fame culture. Christians in agony over missing out on Herod's world and on things that are driven by Herod's value system. In that sense, Gandhi is a better Christian than many Christians are in terms of practice and behavior. Of course, there's all the theology and the belief stuff that still keeps us graciously secure. But nonetheless, shall we not learn from the wisdom outside of our faith that the place where you find glory is not among the culturati. The place where you find glory is among the obscure and the invisible and among those who have to ride third class. You know, this is what encourages me about Christ Presbyterian Church. Our church has a disproportionate number of people who are part of it, who would be probably in the same social circles as the wise men if the wise men were from Nashville, Tennessee. Remember that God received the wise men. God received the wise men, and, 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 and one of the things that made the wise men different than Herod was that they, came, they had arrived to a point where they saw themselves on equal ground with, and, and in some instances, learners of the shepherds and the young virgins and others who did not have access to the halls of power. They celebrated the dignity of all, and they celebrated the reality that sometimes the greatest, most glorious things of God happen through the most unexpected people and circumstances. So I've been here for almost seven years, and March will celebrate seven years being with Christ Prez as our church family. And over those seven years, you know, several of you have offered words of encouragement here and there. Uh, but by a landslide, those words of encouragement, you know, your ministry has had a transformative influence on my life. Overwhelmingly, it hasn't been because of your sermons. It hasn't been because of your vision. It has been because of your depression. Because of your depression. You know, the story of God bringing hope to you in your dark places has given me the encouragement to hang in there through my own dark places. And then we're surrounded by other people who offer similar encouragement. The celebrities at our church, the ones who are applauded, the ones who get more applause even than, than Stephen and Jesse did a few moments ago, which was entirely appropriate for the use of their skill in such a beautiful way. But who gets more applause? The people with special needs. You know, the one event that is not hard to recruit volunteers for at all is very special Bible school where the ratio of volunteer to, 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 to people with special needs is so small, it's almost one person for every one person. Because everybody wants to get on board with that. The, 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 the greatest ovation, the, most lo the loudest ovation that I have witnessed at our church 
was when a young man with autism courageously came up here and read five verses in three and a half minutes. And then he walks away and the congregation gives him an ovation. Then he drops the mic and he starts bowing. Uh, It was glorious, glorious. A picture of the shepherds who are given to us Yeah, to receive something from us, but even more, to show us something about what it means to be an heir of the kingdom. Two of the most powerful people in our church, one with the position of Pontius Pilate, another with the position of Herod the Great. I have witnessed both of them dropping everything, their busy, full agendas, to advocate for vulnerable children to ensure that those vulnerable children are placed in safe homes. Two through foster care, I'm sorry, two through adoption, one through foster care. Two of them materialized just this past week because of these two Christians in power who have the same position as Pilate and Herod, but who use that position in such a different way. This place is glorious. What makes this place great, what makes it strong, what makes it healthy is not nickels and noses, even though we've got plenty of those. It's not what makes this church great. What makes this church great is that you've got powerful politicians, chief executives, venture capitalists, doctors, PhDs, famous musicians, some of whom serve as shepherds, as elders, deacons, and deaconesses, but some of whom also joyfully submit to others who are also shepherds and who are social workers and school teachers and woodworkers and landscapers and some even currently unemployed. What a glorious thing for a person who has power and platform and microphones and loads of resources in the eyes of the world humbly submitting to some in our midst who don't have those things at all. Because the kingdom just gives us a different way to live. Where the primary credential is not your name or your PhD or your fame or your fortune. The primary credential is character and humility and seeing yourself as belonging equally to those with more or less power and influence than you. And, you know, the culturati for years has said, well, Christianity, I can't be part of Christianity because it's so exclusive, you know, the way, the truth, the life, you know, no way to God except through Jesus. Are you kidding me? You've got from the culturati to the mentally disabled, from the, 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 the writers of, 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 of tomes to, to illiterate shepherds in the same space. What could be more inclusive than this? Even Jesus calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life. His reign is also his mercy, and his mercy is his reign. Lastly, foolish dreams. Our 12-year-old, when she turned 12, one of our daughters, she said, you know what, I've, I've come to a point of enlightenment and I've decided that happily ever after stories are for kids who are 11 and under. 
And with the Advent context, when we take away the hot chocolate and the pretty lights and the comfy cozy stuff, and, and, and we strip it down to what it was, a world of terror and trauma and political unrest, first century version of Hitler slaughtering the innocents, Rachel weeping because her children are no more, that's the environment, it's Herod's world. What our daughter's saying makes good sense. I mean, what are the odds that an infant refugee is going to defeat Herod the Great? What are the odds that the meek are going to inherit the earth? What are the odds that the humble are going to be exalted? Are you kidding me? That's the stuff of fairy tales. This is what the secular philosophers, especially the existentialists like Woody Allen, the filmmaker, or Nietzsche, or Camus, or Sartre, or, or Huxley, or David Foster Wallace more recently, they get it so right in terms of diagnosing the human condition and how broken we are, how flawed we are, how, how downright depressing Herod's world is. Not just because of the Herod out there, but because of the Herod inside all of us as well. They get it right. Did you know the original fairy tales would make you depressed? If you took Beauty and the Beast or Cinderella in their original form, remember what they were called? Grimm's fairy tales. You know what Grimm means? Grimm means cruel and fierce. The fairy tales once were cruel and fierce, and then we cleaned them up and turned them into happily ever after stories. I dare you to read the originals. It will hurt your heart because they tell the truth about the life we're living now. But but our daughter was still on to something. You know, our daughter, her thinking was wrong in that she thought, well, the happily ever after stories are an escape from reality. You know, like Billy Joel says, you know, I know that it's me that they're coming to see to forget about life for a while. It's actually the opposite, the happily ever after story, the one with the hot chocolate and with the warm lights and with the beautiful smelling trees and with the coziness and the, 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 the family image and the hallmark stuff, with all that, that's actually the true and everlasting story. It's, actually, it's just the chapter that hasn't, it's been written, but it hasn't been lived yet. And it's the chapter that doesn't end because there's another Advent coming where the older you get, the less cynical you become. Where the older you get, the more in wonder you live your life. The stronger you become, the more intelligent and thoughtful and happy you become. That's the final chapter that comes from the second Advent or coming of Christ. That's why we say, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. And ransom, captive Israel. We can rejoice even from captivity because of what Bonhoeffer said, from prison awaiting his own execution. He says our whole life is Advent, a time of waiting for the ultimate, for the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, when another wise man will come to us from the east according to our perspective. He won't have to consult the stars because he created them. He won't be running from the king because he is the king, and he won't come violently. He'll come benevolently and mercifully, using his power to turn us all into trophies and to write the true story, where we do escape the grim realities, and where autistic young men get ovations and wheelchairs become 
pulpits and people who ride fourth class become our teachers and where the culturati are rendered speechless in wonder and joy, bringing costly gifts. That's the world I want to be part of. Only by the grace of God, I want to be part of that world. Do you? Let's pray. Lord, the Apostle Paul wrote to the culturati of his day in Corinth that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God stronger than human strength. Lord, I love the the lyrics from the Nashville artist Michael Card when he sings, So we follow God's own fool, where only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable, and come be a fool as well. May this be our story too. Amen.